Even though this is the story of Pocahontas and John Smith, it's nothing like the fairy tale versions out there. This story is dark, violent, and contains some pretty heavy adult themes. Please check out the more lengthy disclaimer on MythPodcast.com, linked in the show notes, before letting your children listen to this episode. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're finishing up the story of Pocahontas. I'll do a pretty bad Morgan Freeman impression, and you'll see that you might just be able to save your life by yelling 16th century science at strangers. Then, on the Creature of the Week, even though we all have the desire to walk into the forest and insult trees, you probably should keep it to yourself, or else you might hurt the feelings of this invisible, murderous creature. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 36, Between Two Streams. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by Mac Weldon. They are more comfortable than whatever you're wearing right now. Sorry to say. No, but really, they make super comfortable underwear, t-shirts, hoodies, socks, and a lot of other things. Not only are they super comfortable, but their silver line is made out of naturally antimicrobial fabric. So that means it's naturally odor resistant. So unlike the characters on our story today, hopefully history won't remember your horrible, horrible smell. Anyway, if you're interested, check out MacWeldon.com, link in the show notes, and get 20% off using the code MYTHS. Last week on the show, we met John Smith, working with the Virginia Company from England, and they were trying to establish a permanent colony in North America. It didn't start well, with infighting, starvation, and the particularly bad location of Jamestown, the settlement. And those factors led to nearly three quarters of the English colonists dying in the first year. John Smith, on an expedition upriver, forcing trade from the Chickahominy people in a time of drought, was captured at the behest of Powhatan, the paramount chief of over 30 tribes in the area. George Casson was a laborer. He had survived the summer, and he had been handpicked by John Smith to go venturing into the territory of the Chickahominy tribe. He sat in the boat, wrapped in fur, shivering as the sun went down, his two companions were as well. And if they weren't constantly fearing for their lives from either starvation, disease, or a native population they couldn't possibly understand, then the sunset might have been beautiful. George looked out at the men next to him, others he had seen working around Jamestown. They were hard to miss. The workers, that is. The stuck-up gentlemen back at town refused to work, even as they got closer and closer to winter and the food stores dwindled. George Casson wasn't afraid or ashamed of work, and here, in the New World, he would craft a life for himself, better than the one he had left back in England. George felt a pat on his shoulder, and then another one, more urgent. He reached for his pistol, and as his heart beat faster, his companion pushed it down. Don't mess this up, he heard. George looked at the beach. There, on the sand, sat the most beautiful women George had ever seen. Well, kind of the only women George had seen in the past year or so. They smiled at the three men, sitting on the barge of things Smith had traded, or stolen based on who you read. For the middle of November, 
they were wearing shockingly little. They began beckoning the men to land. And they barely even needed that much encouragement. Minutes later, the three Englishmen ran their boat aground on the banks of the river and walked off of it. George was first. He walked up to one of the native women, but as he got close, her smile faded and she took a couple of steps backwards into the forest. George Casson took an arrow to the knee and went down. His screams warned his friends, who were closer to the boat. They saw 20 men emerge from the forest and watched their friend George take a club to the head. They didn't know if he was dead, but they couldn't rescue him anyway. They barely made it under a barrage of arrows back to the barge. They fired once, the shot that John Smith would hear in the forest, but it missed. That made the men of the Chickahominy tribe back off, and the last thing the Englishmen saw as they made it safely to the middle of the river was a group of men gathering around George and picking him up. George wasn't dead, the men learned, as they heard his screams echoing down the river, and they escaped back towards Jamestown. Hours later, the men who cleaned up the skinned, fingerless remains of George Casson entered their town to see quite the performance. They came to tell Chief Opechancano that the Englishmen had not died well, and they still had no idea what the invaders were doing so far away from their ridiculous little town. But it seemed as if they had caught one. The men saw John Smith gesturing wildly in the middle of town. Smith said, kind of, remember he wasn't fluent in the Algonquin language, that he was the son of the chief, Captain Newport, and he showed proof of his power by producing a strange little circle that always pointed north. Then he launched into a long, long description of a heliocentric universe. Let alone that this was completely irrelevant to anything, he probably didn't even have the words to communicate this effectively, or at all. He attributes his salvation to him dazzling the minds of the natives with cutting-edge 17th century science. In reality, according to a modern-day historian, and not the 17th century explorer trying to make himself look good, the Chickahominy just thought it was polite to be good listeners, and they probably weren't going to kill him anyway. When they learned that he was an English chieftain, either from the guide last episode or from Smith here, they knew Powhatan would want to see him. The mysterious chieftain over everything had learned of the English, and he wanted to meet the leaders of the little tribe. And it worked out, because now they had to leave. Because even though their chief, Opechancano, didn't want to harm him, there were those in his tribe that did. Real quickly, Opechancano is actually second in line for Powhatan's throne. And from now on, I'm just going to call him O. Anyway, in Powhatan culture, revenge wasn't really handled by the chief, you weren't like disturbing the king's peace or anything. It was a personal thing. O wouldn't take revenge for the man Smith had killed when he was captured, but he couldn't stop the man's family from trying to kill Smith. The only thing he could do was get the English chief as far away from here as possible. They left soon after on the long-ish trip to see Powhatan, the paramount chief. Powhatan oral history says that they took a little victory lap to the surrounding villages, showing that the English weren't invincible and that their little pistols weren't magic, just machines. They made their way to the Middle Peninsula and to Powhatan City on the northern banks of the York River. 
Also, while we're talking about the geography and culture and all that, Powhatan Secession is actually really interesting. For a werewince, or chief, which could be men or women, succession is matrilineal, meaning through the mother. So we have Powhatan, who is the first son of the eldest sister to the previous chief. The office cycles through all the brothers and sisters before going to the first child of the first daughter and starting again in that family. If you were the chief, that would mean the first child of your sister's family, or the first child in your family if you're a woman, would be the next leader of the next generation. But only after you and every one of your siblings died. If you think about it, this makes so much sense, and I'm not being sarcastic. That way you don't have the issue of babies being named kings when their fathers died, like they did in Europe. On the contrary, the leader of the next generation would be very experienced by the time power passed to him or her. The children of the Powhatan, or the ruler, were kind of like VIPs while the person ruled, but they would never see power. Not only that, but the ruler could have several, several spouses, and literally scores of children. Pocahontas, while Powhatan's favorite daughter, by his supposedly favorite wife, wasn't really a princess in our sense of the word, because it would be her aunt's first child that would be the leader after her father and aunts and uncles were all dead. You might not have cared, but I found those details to be pretty interesting, with all the checks and balances in place. John Smith, no longer in chains, was brought through Werewakamoko, the city Powhatan ruled from, on the north side of the modern-day York River. People likely marveled at his ridiculously fair skin and oddly hairy face, and would be interested to see one of the squatters that had landed just 15 miles south. Smith would have seen people hard at work, preparing a feast, and even perhaps bathing in the icy York River. The men escorted Smith through the town and pushed open the mat door to reveal a 20-foot by 20-foot room. It was warm and lined with people. Toward the front were priests, and John Smith understood that he was supposed to walk forward through the dimly lit thatch hut. Toward the 60-year-old man sitting at the far end, he would have passed after the priests, other chiefs, and then some of Powhatan's wives, everyone painted and arrayed in costly beads. Powhatan, who was basically the male leader of the Powhatan people, was in his 60s, but he was strong. In his culture, everyone worked. The women farmed and tended to the house, and the men hunted. Powhatan, the leader, demanded a tribute from his client tribes, which could get as high as 70% of their agricultural yield. Powhatan was the leader of his people, but even he, at 60 years old, went hunting for deer and other things. And Smith's writings talk of him as remarkably strong and powerful for his age. Sitting on a raised platform, he towered above Smith, who, at five foot three inches tall, was short for an Englishman. The little man in front of the Powhatan stunk so badly. Powhatan was eager to learn what the squatters on that terrible little peninsula wanted. Powhatan sat with Smith. They smoked and he asked what the Englishman was doing so far from home. The hairy, stinky little man said that their ships had run into problems with the evil Spanish. They had been attacked at sea and forced to land here. Smith's father, their chief, named Newport, was heading back to their kingdom of England, which encompassed all of Europe, if you're wondering, to get supplies to fix the ship. As soon as they fix the ship, the Englishman will be leaving, John Smith promised. Powhatan smiled. This little man didn't disappoint. Powhatan knew he was lying. His spies had seen them building forts and houses. They clearly intended to stay. 
Poughton might not have understood the culture of these people from across the sea, but he wasn't stupid. And really, the English were nothing to him. Their small band was half dead after the summer on that poisonous little peninsula. They were still drinking from the river, the barbarians. Powhatan likely felt confident that he could swat the English like a mosquito anytime he wanted. But he didn't want to, for as ridiculous as they were, they still had goods that he could use. With the Spanish a few years back and the various other encounters, it became clear that the Europeans weren't going away. In addition, it's not like Powhatan was completely undisputed in his lands. The further he pushed back from the coast, the more tribes resisted him. Some were powerful enough to make war against him. Powhatan had to learn of the Europeans and their weapons, and to obtain some for himself. Powhatan told Smith that here's what they're going to do. He was going to make Smith a werewince, a chief, under Powhatan. His little tribe of Englishmen could have land that wasn't in a salty swamp, and they would just have to make things for Powhatan and his people. John Smith looked up at Powhatan and smiled. He agreed to be chief under Powhatan. The English would serve him. Powhatan, happy that this didn't need to end in violence, announced to everyone that the feast would begin. His priests, wives, and best warriors all came to a feast for this smelly little foreign chief. And that's when Powhatan made an attempt on his life. The savage and tricky native betrayed him. He was going to brain him with a club at dinner, but it was only by the intervention of his noble and beautiful daughter that he stayed his hand. For now. Or that's what John Smith would have us believe. If you're thinking it doesn't fit here, you are so, so right. Okay, so like I said last episode, there are a couple different versions of John Smith's stories. There are his 1608 letters, and then his writings later on. And the 1608 letters, which were just to a friend back in London, and published without his knowledge or consent, he told the version I told just now. It was a tense meeting, but ultimately he and the English were welcomed into the Powhatan Confederacy, and under the command of the Paramount Chief, that their intention was to in no way be content with that hierarchy is something we'll get to. The later works were published for public consumption, and included the bits about him being an awesome slave, and, for the first time, the story of Pocahontas saving his life. There's some alleged corroborating evidence in a letter that he wrote to Queen Anne, but while the version of the letters in Smith's books, it hasn't ever been located in royal archives. There are three different readings of the attempted execution of John Smith. The first is that it did happen the way John Smith said in his later writings. The second is that it did not happen to him, as John Smith said in his earlier writings. The third is that it may have happened, but it was symbolic and not an actual thwarted execution. First, I'll say why many historians agree it probably didn't happen, and then I'll talk about the symbolic theory. Starting out, Pocahontas probably wasn't at the feast. Powhatan would want to have impressed the foreigner, and those in the 20 foot by 20 foot building would have been the most distinguished chiefs, Powhatan's best looking wives, and his priests. His prepubescent daughter, no matter how much he liked her, would not have been impressive to a foreigner. Also, according to Powhatan oral tradition, the priest would have overseen the ceremony of making John Smith a werewance, or chief, and children of any gender wouldn't have been allowed to attend. She, more likely, would have been helping to prepare the food or help out O's entourage. Powhatan had vowed to release Smith in a few days, and we haven't even talked about the folly of preparing a large feast, feeding someone, 
and then having him summarily executed on a full stomach being ridiculous because the feast would have been a costly expenditure both in food and work in a time of famine. The method of death doesn't make any sense either because Smith himself said that disobedient subjects were clubbed to death while enemy prisoners were slowly tortured to death as was the case with John Casson at the top of the episode. In addition, the priest had told Powton that they read Smith and found him, in the English, to be well-intentioned toward the natives. It seems unlikely that Powton would have gone through the time and expense to feed Smith, declare him as chief, symbolically adopt him as a son, and then kill him against the advice of his well-regarded priests. This was even before considering the fact that Smith's own accounts, the only accounts that we have of this alleged attempted execution, don't match up. There's also a theory that this was symbolic. I'll keep this brief, but some native cultures had a testing of courage for prisoners before making them into allies. Setting aside the fact that this doesn't really match up with anything like that, Powhatan made him into an ally and then allegedly tested his courage, which would have been backwards. What is more likely, as it seems to me, is that Smith was writing this in 1624 with an agenda. Two years prior, there was a very bad massacre of the colony in Virginia. And it seems likely that Smith wanted to depict the natives as prone to violent, unpredictable treachery of the poor English who just happened to be at their mercy. To round out this part, I feel it's safe to say that the rescue, one of the most famous aspects of the Pocahontas tale, is likely just a legend. I feel pretty confident in echoing the author Helen Roundtree's words that Smith was only in danger of eating too much. That being said, Pocahontas, the real historical Pocahontas, was actually an incredibly brave person and helped to bring about peace in two nations. And we are finally going to start talking about this pivotal character right after this. This episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious, home-cooked meals. So my wife and I tried out Blue Apron this week, and it was amazing. We made beef arepas with pickled onions. We like to cook, but this isn't something we would normally make because you'd have to find a good recipe, get all the different ingredients and way too much of the ingredients for one meal for two people. And also, I'd have to learn how to pickle something. As it turns out, it was actually a lot of fun and pretty easy. The fresh ingredients are super cool and all that, but I really liked, one, not having to measure anything and having the perfect amount, and two, spending time together making something different. Also, I now know how to pickle things. It was pretty easy. They advertised that it's taken about 40 minutes per meal. And I timed it, and it actually just took us 33 minutes, from laying out all the ingredients to sitting down at the table. Also, and just saying, you know what else lasts about 40 minutes? A certain really cool folklore podcast. Maybe it's something to listen to while you make a Blue Apron meal. Great date idea, or greatest date idea. Anyway... Blue Apron's awesome gourmet food, and you really can't beat the experience. So yeah, you can check out this week's menu and get your three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com legends. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So seriously, don't wait. That's blueapron.com legends. 
Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This week's episode is brought to you by Weebly. So, as I said a couple weeks back, I started a Weebly site. And the holdup in telling you all what it's named is that I just haven't had time to add anything to it. And that hasn't really been the Weebly system's fault. It's incredibly easy to get the site up and running. Like I said, you can just drag and drop elements all over the page. Heck, not having time isn't really even an excuse, because they have an app for iPhone where you can edit your site right there on the go. If you have a business, it's super simple to customize their themes for that. There are professionally designed themes for seemingly everything, and they're beautiful. They make me want to start a restaurant or a band, even though I'm not a great cook and I'm objectively terrible at the guitar. That's how good the themes are, though. But yeah, if you need a site for something, seriously check out Weebly. It looks great, and you don't need to be an expert or hire an expert to have an awesome website in no time. Even if you don't need a site for something, you can start for free and just see what happens. So yeah, join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com slash myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. Weebly.com slash myths. Nearly one year later, Powhatan's favorite daughter, called Pocahontas, looked down at the axe. I like to imagine that, to her, it wasn't just an axe that had been stolen from Jamestown by one of her father's men, but a symbol of a wider, different world out there. She had grown up in a world where the Europeans had been known, but until now, until these strange squatters in the peninsula and the Pospeg territory, none had been so close. In the last year, the English hadn't been exactly forthcoming with their technology. In Powhatan society, with no written language, your word was your bond. And these English were showing themselves to be very devious. Not only that, but when Smith's father, Newport, returned, it became clear that the English were neither leaving on their new ships, as Smith had said, nor were they moving inland, as Powhatan had suggested slash commanded of his new chief. Still, Pocahontas liked them, she visited them regularly with her father's warriors to trade. She, nearly 12 years old, had struck up a friendship with their now president, Captain John Smith. He seemed to be kind and earnest, and gave her extra beads and copper on top of whatever they were trading for the corn. He was odd and paranoid, of course. One time when he came to Werewakamoko, the people were going out to put a mock battle on for the foreigners. But Smith assumed it was an ambush, and, once again, grabbed the native closest to him and put a pistol to the man's head. After much frantic communication, Smith and his companions let the man go and understood the error. Some say it was because Pocahontas personally pledged for their safety and said that if the Powhatan people attacked, the English could kill her. If true, this gesture shows a lot of trust in Smith and the English. In the past year, though, only more of the Europeans had come. Trying to farm, though, they just made more odd, inedible things, like glass. It had been another bad summer, too. The drought was continuing, and it put pressure on her father and her people when feeding themselves, let alone the smelly squatters down in the Paspa Egg territory. Pocahontas, because she liked the English, couldn't really believe it when she heard the first stories. The Europeans walking into Powhatan villages, not asking to trade, but demanding it. They never put the muskets and the pistols down. The violence was implied at first, 
but soon they would refuse to leave unless they were given corn for the hard, inedible trinkets they carried. Werowakamoko, Powhatan's capital, was largely insulated from this, so Pocahontas wouldn't be forced to dig tubers from the frozen ground in the winter like the other villages, but it did put a strain on her father. It escalated when, knowing his people would die without the corn, Powhatan commanded the smaller villages to take their stores and hide them in the forest, deep away from the foreigners. Powhatan was trying to subtly, or not so subtly, encourage this chief to stop coming into the villages and demanding corn, and possibly to leave. One of his tribes had become overly familiar with the English, swearing allegiance to them and promising to farm corn for them. They were called the Pionk people. Were. Pocahontas looked at the axe. Smith and the others were coming to Werewakamoko now, ostensibly to trade, but she knew better. She would see Smith arrive, but she and the other women and children would flee into the forest the next day, as they had been instructed to. As much as she liked Smith and thought well of the English, she was the daughter of Powhatan, and she would remain with her people. The ice was thick on the York River, well, modern-day York River. Its name to the Native Americans was the Pamunkey River, and to the English colonists, it was the Charles River at the time. Smith rode on a barge, expecting to bring it back full of corn. He knew Powhatan was holding out on him, hiding the corn in the woods. Smith, as he said, just wanted to keep his friends alive and do what the Virginia Company had paid him to do to lead a successful colony in the New World. Smith was now the president of the Jamestown colony. Wingfield, the guy last week, left with Newport on one of his trips back to England. Smith was only too happy to be part of a coup that undid his rival. He accused Wingfield, one of the few who didn't get sick or starve during the horrible summer before last, of squirreling away food in one of the ships. The people who took his place didn't care. They just wanted his position. It was with no small amount of joy that Smith locked Wingfield in the same prison on the Susan Constant that the investor had locked Smith in. Now Smith was the leader, though the whole endeavor was like herding entitled, self-important cats. No one wanted to work, and things only seemed to get done when Newport was in town with the sailors, who would build houses and bring food from England. Still, though, it was Smith's job to keep the men, and now two women, alive. Powhatan had to be holding out on him. He knew it. All the talk of drought. Smith would get the corn one way or another. Once he made it to shore, slowly with his men breaking the ice in front of the boats, he found Powhatan, now 62-ish, standing on the banks, flanked by warriors, chiefs, and priests. He asked Smith why he had come. Smith had not been invited. There were none of his chiefs that he treated as well as John Smith and none treated him more poorly. Smith said he loved Powhatan like a father, and he thought they should talk about the past few months. They talked mainly through boys they had traded, which sounds way worse than it actually is. Powhatan had sent a young man to live with the English, and the English had sent a 13-year-old boy named Thomas Savage to live with Powhatan. Both boys were to learn the language of the other culture, so that when the cultures met, the men could speak, and also probably be spies for the other culture. Walking through the town to the house where Smith had been adopted as a son and made into a chief less than a year before, 
They passed things hanging out in the open. Smith likely knew what they were immediately and narrowed his eyes. Perhaps the other men in his troop took a bit longer, but when they figured it out, it probably sent a chill down their spines. They saw the scalps of the Piankatank people, the tribe that had been allied with them and had vowed to give them corn. Powhatan had dealt with them indeed. Intense talks, Powhatan chastised Smith for wanting to take by force what would be freely given. Why did they want adversaries when they could have friends in Powhatan and his people? Smith claimed that he was innocent of threatening the tribes for food, saying that Powhatan was guilty of straining their alliance, trying to starve out the English and steal things from Jamestown. Powhatan then leveled a chilling accusation against Smith. Powhatan said that he suspected Smith wasn't in the country to trade or form alliances, but to invade his people and possess his country. Not waiting for a response, he told Smith that he could prove his goodwill by leaving the guns on the boats when they spoke the next day. Smith said that he wouldn't dare harm his father, but the issue of coming unarmed to these meetings was, as always, a non-starter. That night, Powhatan let them stay in the thatch houses in Werewakamoko. next day, Powhatan sprinted to the forest, to the women and children just outside of Werewakamoko. Even over 60, he was used to chasing down bucks, so a quick jog wasn't much. Then, he heard a shot ring out behind him. We don't know how the alliance ultimately crumbled. Powhatan oral history claims that Powhatan had nothing but goodwill for the English, and though he couldn't spare the food, he wasn't about to murder them. John Smith claims that Powhatan excused himself from the meeting and that the English were ambushed by archers. It was only a combination of thick winter clothes and pistols that stopped the assassins. I'll leave it ambiguous, but when it comes to the relations between the English and the Powhatans from here on out, it becomes far more contentious, with both sides claiming innocence in the matters. Regardless, Powhatan heard yelling from the city and ran back. He found, in the center of town, Smith holding a gun to the head of a man who had allegedly tried to murder him. Behind Smith, the people from Jamestown had their guns out and aimed all around the town, a town curiously devoid of women and children. Smith announced that he would be taking the corn he had come here to trade for. The implication very, very, very clear. Powhatan, not wishing for his warriors to be slaughtered, consented inasmuch as one could consent with a gun trained on you, with a barge packed full of corn, and the natives given trinkets in return, Smith announced that they are leaving. The alliance is broken. Wait, but why aren't we moving? One of the workers looked up at him. Oh, so as it turns out, the tide is out, so we're like barely in the water at all. We're actually almost sinking into the riverbank. So we can't leave right now, Smith asked. Oh no, not at all, the worker said. Maybe not till midnight-ish? Oh, Smith said, and looked back at Werewakamoko. Hey, so as it turns out, we're kind of stuck here, so we're gonna need a place to stay tonight. But then tomorrow, we are leaving, and the alliance is broken. So they 
cautiously walked back ashore, guns trained on people, and entered a house where they would be staying the night. The next part is debated as well. It comes up in Smith's 1924 account, but Powhatan oral history denies that it would even be necessary. In the night, roused from sleep, Smith heard a familiar voice. The girl. The girl that had always visited. Pocahontas. What was it? She was shaking Smith awake, saying that her father would kill him if he didn't leave immediately. Powhatan strengthened his forces in the night, and in the morning, they would destroy Smith and the others. The 12-year-old had told him that the tide was back. They could leave. Smith thanked the young girl and yelled to all of his men to wake up. They leapt to their feet and rushed out of the still-sleeping Werewakamoko to the barge, escaping in the safety of night. Smith then went upriver to the Chickahominy tribes, not in Powhatan's confederacy, but still ruled by Powhatan's brother, O. Last week, I said that he put guns to the heads of people to trade. It's actually here where both Powhatan oral history and Smith's written histories agree that he was just terrible. Threatening his way back downriver, he decided to outright raid Werewakamoko. He was feeling pretty confident, and while he had taken a lot last time, he would now just gut the town. He made the familiar approach to the now unfamiliar place. Instead of a bustling town, with men bringing back their kills, women pounding corn, and children bathing in the frozen York River, Smith saw the wind whipping across the frames of the Powhatan houses. They had taken not just the corn, but even the very walls of their homes, where Wakamoko had been abandoned. John Smith was dead. It had been six or so months since Powhatan and Pocahontas and the others had flipped Werewakamoko and went upriver to the edges of Powhatan's dominion. Powhatan had inquired several times, possibly out of respect for his old adversary, possibly out of desire for revenge for what Smith had done to his people. Every time, whether it came from spies or from diplomatic talks with the new president, Powhatan learned that Smith, in an accident, had some gunpowder go off next to him. It grievously wounded his leg, and Powhatan and Pocahontas were told multiple times that he had died en route to get medical attention in England. Two-month ambulance rides not really being super effective. I can't imagine this news was met with much sorrow from Powhatan or Pocahontas. In the intervening months, Smith led raids to burn villages, and it killed many people. They captured the chief of the Pospeg tribe and held him in Jamestown, the squatters were branching out from Jamestown too. When they found Oropax, where Powhatan had taken up residence after Werewakamoko, they actually attempted to set up a fort on the other side of the river. That was the last time Powhatan saw Smith. The quote-unquote son and former chief of his had been demanding that Powhatan give up his new backwater capital. After Smith left in a huff, Powhatan set warriors upon the new fort, and only one man escaped alive. Now that Smith was dead, though, things were starting to look up. No one was quite as competent as Smith as an adversary, and as the year stretched on, and as the Powhatan Confederacy was definitely not feeding the English, things were beginning to get bad for the squatters. So bad that Powhatan was able to recruit several spies, who, upon seeing how nice Powhatan's villages were, decided to offer their services. They were mostly German workers with no loyalty for the Virginia Company. 
upon arriving in the new world and seeing that someone might have been doctoring the letters saying how awesome the place was, the German workers decided to steal tools and weapons for Powhatan. The winter of 1609 was a harsh one for the people of Jamestown. If they could have grown crops, which they didn't, they wouldn't have been able to grow much because 1609 was the fourth straight year of droughts. Powhatan really didn't even have enough for his people, but not having to feed a parasitic settlement this year was pretty nice. The winter of 1609 to 1610 was known as the starving time in Jamestown. The natives had them pinned down inside their fort, and there's evidence that the survivors resorted to cannibalism in order to make it through the winter. One author speculates on why Powhatan doesn't just wipe them out right here. Well, one, he didn't think he needed to. His land was doing it for him. Two, he and his people hadn't seen too many of the foreigners at once. So perhaps they thought England was as populated as the coastal region of Virginia. If more did come, they would come in the same numbers, with the likely same terrible provisions. They'd shown that without a magnetic and multi-capable personality like Smith, they couldn't survive here. Let them come. Powhatan knew better than to help them now. The next summer, in June, they watched with glee as a ship arrived. The gaunt, horrific creatures that had left the fort and entered the ship were almost to be pitied, if not for all the Powhatan people that had been killed. After they watched the ship sail away, back to England, the Paspa Egg Warriors walked cautiously up to the Jamestown fort. The door creaked open, only to show empty wooden houses. The peninsula had been abandoned by the English. Powhatan had won. Unfortunately, mere hours after Powhatan received the awesome news, he learned that there were other ships arriving in the Chesapeake. Days later, he learned that they stopped at the Jamestown Fort, and many fresh colonists spilled out. They also learned that Powhatan had been charged by the Crown with the extermination of the lost colony of Roanoke a few decades ago. It was a trumped-up charge with little basis in reality. The new governor, West, came seeing him as a criminal, and only a criminal. There would be no year-long tense friendship before relations with the two nations crumbled. West wouldn't make the same mistake Smith had in being too nice to the natives. He was determined to crush this chief. Powhatan wasn't scared, though. He had defeated the first group, and that only took so long because they had pretended to be friends. Life continued somewhat as normal. His daughter, Pocahontas, got married to a warrior, though they stayed in Orpax. Then, as a show of seriousness on behalf of the English, a Pospag man was sent to Orapax without a hand as a warning to Powhatan that if he didn't return the tools, weapons, and runaways that had come his way, he would find his towns and cornfields burned. This was met, days later, with horrifying news. Seventy of the Europeans attacked the Pospag capital in the night. It had been burned, and some people had escaped into the countryside. Others did not. Most notably, and most sickeningly, the English took native children aboard the ships, threw them into the river, and fired at the immobilized targets. Those that survived the attack returned to their burned homes later and found the bodies of their children floating in the river. There were no more diplomatic talks between Powhatans and the Europeans after that. Things continued to be bad. What Powhatan didn't know was that the English were committed to this now, 
Jamestown, would now be better provisioned than ever, and there was a constant influx of guns, people, and food. Powhatan, who would begin losing people to death and disease, would find that the English seemed to multiply, while the natives, in this protracted war, would eventually see their numbers dwindle. The next few years would be bitter for both sides, but even more so for Powhatan, faced with his long-standing native enemies to the west without, and his enemies from across the sea from within, he was in a tough spot. It became even worse when the Pospag people, who claimed the territory in which Jamestown was built, lost their leader. In a skirmish, he was run through multiple times with a sword in retreat by an overzealous Englishman. Many others were killed in the battle, and after losing their capital and now their chief, the Pospag deserted their villages and dispersed into the other tribes, ceding the area to the English. The Pospag tribe was no more. This continued, with the English pushing deeper and deeper into native territory, taking over some farms and villages. Finally, with enough of the tribes feeling the effect of the English, former enemies decided to band together and completely destroy the invaders. Then, Powhatan received perhaps the only news that would cause him to halt such an operation. Pocahontas, his favorite daughter, had been kidnapped. When she was visiting her friends in the Potawatomi tribe. Now 17, she was fully a woman. I also never addressed the whole thing about her being naked last week. In Powhatan culture, in the summer, prepubescent children ran around naked, and so, years ago in our story, the young girl Pocahontas would likely have been naked while visiting Jamestown and getting trinkets from Smith. Once she passed the threshold of adulthood, she would start wearing deerskin aprons, like many others in her tribe. Anyway, while visiting her friends, she saw an English ship sitting at anchor. The chief wanted to meet with them and visit the ship, and walking up, Pocahontas was surprised to find the men friendly. They didn't know of her, and they were more than happy to let Pocahontas and the chief's beautiful young wife aboard. They showed the women all around, but upon trying to exit, Pocahontas found that the chief's wife was allowed to walk away, but when Pocahontas tried to leave, she found two rather large Englishmen blocking her way. They might not have been able to communicate this to her, but Powhatan had eight of their men held hostage and a lot of stolen weapons. She would be coming with them to Jamestown until they got those back. Okay, so here's another area where the accounts differ wildly. English accounts maintain that she was well-treated, as was the custom when royalty was captured. Powhatan oral history maintains that she was raped and tortured psychologically. I'll go through both versions. The more positive reading of the situation states that she was taken to Jamestown, treated well, and learned the language. After releasing nearly all the men, she learned from her captors that Powhatan apparently refused to give up the tools and weapons, angry that her father would value the stuff over his favorite daughter, and maybe developing a bit of Stockholm Syndrome, she took to the culture more than ever, and took to a kind 28-year-old widower named John Rolfe, who, as his letter stated, fell completely in love with this 17-year-old captive. In the positive versions, she decided she wanted to stay and accepted Rolfe's marriage proposal. In Powhatan oral history, it's far, far darker. She was taken captive, and her captors began to break her down psychologically. 
They told her her father had abandoned her. And then she was, according to the oral history, repeatedly raped to the point where she became pregnant. They allowed her sister to come visit and Pocahontas confided this fact to her. They moved Pocahontas in an attempt to hide the pregnancy and she was allegedly forced into a marriage with John Rolfe. And despite being a captive, she saw this child as an opportunity to bridge the gap between cultures and cement peace. Like I said, those are two very different accounts. I'll post the sources and leave it up to you if you'd like to look into it further. Regardless, Pocahontas married John Rolfe, apparently converted to Christianity, and took the name Rebecca Rolfe. As I hinted a few weeks back, Pocahontas wasn't her original name. Like Muad'Dib is to Usul from Dune, Pocahontas is to Matawaka, which was her private tribe name. This was revealed to the English speakers when she was baptized. Pocahontas actually means little mischievous one or little wanton one. It was a nickname given to her by her father. Matawaka, her private name, meant flower between two streams, which is actually strangely prophetic. It was private because people in her culture believed, as many around the world do, that if someone knows your real name, they can put a hex or a curse on you. She moved in with her new husband and eventually gave birth to a young boy named Thomas Rolfe. Upon learning of the marriage and of Pocahontas' apparent willingness to stay with the English, both sides of the conflict settled into an uneasy peace. It was 1614, and even though the English would continue to encroach on Powhatan land, the hostilities would cease for years. John Rolfe, Pocahontas' husband, was a tobacco farmer, and by virtue of his marriage to Pocahontas, gained much land. Then, they both received word that they would be traveling to England. The Virginia Company, in apparently converting a Native American to the English culture and religion, wanted to show off their progress in taming a savage to spur investment in Jamestown. We don't know much about her time in London. The trip was on the Virginia Company's dime, and as I said, it was a propaganda trip more than anything. Writing conflicts about this trip as well. Either Pocahontas was a charming and socially adept guest of the king, or she was an easily forgettable curiosity. And if you can't tell, I'm doing sort of a rundown by the facts here. I think it's a little tricky to put thoughts in the heads of historical figures, but doubly so with Pocahontas. Given her wildly different accounts about her relationships with the English in general, and John Rolfe in particular, I don't feel like there's a way to reconcile things. But there's one thing about her trip that was completely unambiguous. Within hours of landing in London, Pocahontas, now going by Rebecca, would have learned something truly shocking. John Smith was alive. He had survived his trip back to England and had found medical attention. He had even returned to North America and coined the phrase New England for the region of the country now known as New England. There, notably, he named a cape in the modern-day state of New Hampshire, Cape Trebizonda, after the noblewoman who had purchased him as a slave and with whom he had fallen in love in Istanbul. Upon presenting the map to King Charles, the successor to King James, for whom Jamestown and the James River were named, King Charles changed the name of Cape Trebizonda to Cape Anne, after his mother. It's still named that to this day. It's about 30 miles north of Boston. Smith had tried to go back to North America after his trip to New England, but one ship was destroyed by storms, and the other captured by pirates. At the ripe old age of 36 with enough stories for several lifetimes, he stayed in England. 
I can imagine that Pocahontas was nervous about seeing the man the entire time in England, but he didn't stop by while she was in London. It was only on the last day of their journey that the princess, as she was erroneously called, heard news that an old friend was at the door. It said that upon seeing Smith's face, she turned around and would not speak to him. The short and now far less foul-smelling Englishman likely tried to charm his old friend, but she wanted nothing to do with him. John Rolfe said, perhaps awkwardly, they should leave Rebecca alone for a little while. I can't imagine what was going through Pocahontas' head. Here was Smith. He was a man who had befriended her when she was a child of only 11. During the peaceful times, she used to probably excitedly, make the trip to Jamestown to see him and the English. And he gave her extra trinkets, like an older brother or an uncle. But then she learned that it had all been a lie. Maybe he had genuinely cared for her, but it didn't matter. She heard the stories of his treachery, brutality. The colonists had destroyed the world as Pocahontas, and her father knew it. He might not have been there for the worst of the atrocities, Smith helped found and lead the colony up to that point. Worse yet, he did it while Powhatan had trusted him. Powhatan had made Smith a chief and a symbolic son. And look what Smith had done to repay them. Hours later, when they returned, Smith walked in the door to Pocahontas standing there. This time, she did want to talk. He addressed her as the king's daughter, but she spat the words back at him. Really? When she's here, she's the king's daughter, but in her homeland, in the land of the man he just esteemed as king, who Smith called father, Smith threatened the lives of everyone but Pocahontas. She said that they trusted Smith, and he wasn't even honest in death. They had asked multiple times after him, but they were told that he died. Her father mistrusted the English, who Pocahontas said lied so much to him, that he sent one of his priests to see if Smith, his old adversary and ally, was really dead. Unfortunately, our only source in this conversation is, you probably guessed it, John Smith. I paraphrased it, but it's not that far off. It wasn't that he never came back to Virginia, or didn't send word that he was alive, or that it took him so long to see her in England, or any of that romantic comedy nonsense. She was angry that he had so terribly betrayed her and her people. Like I said, Smith is our source for this. And in writing, with the mention of the priest, Smith's writing trails off and changes subject to the priest who was visiting England with Pocahontas. We don't know how the conversation ended, but given how it started and what Smith was willing to document about himself, it can't have ended well for Smith. Regardless, that would be the last time they ever spoke. It seems to me that the pair who met on the other side of the world and became unlikely friends, will part in bitter anger. Pocahontas was going home. She, John Rolfe, and their son Thomas Rolfe boarded a ship and set sail. Unfortunately, like the Jamestown expedition now 10 years prior, it too stopped in the channel but not for weather. They turned around and docked at Gravesend. Pocahontas was dying. The accounts of her death are brief, 
and it seemed to be the sickness known then as the bloody flux. Now we know it as dysentery. Rolf said her last words with it all must die, but it's enough that her child lives. With that, Matuaka, called Pocahontas and later Rebecca Rolf, died an ocean away from her home. Thomas Rolf, her child, also became sick, but he got better. John Rolf left the boy in London in order for him to recover. He would never see his son again because he would die in Jamestown just three years later. John Rolfe returned to Jamestown and Powhatan was saddened by the death of his favorite daughter. Up until 1618, things were tense and kind of not great for the Powhatans. They paid the English tribute, so they had to forge harder for food while the English kept expanding into the best farmland. Powhatan died in April 1618, an outwardly affable old man. As was the custom, power passed to his younger brother, and then, when he died, power passed again to O. Remember, he was the chief who captured Smith, now 12 years prior, in Chickahominy territory. Even though he was nearly as old as Powhatan, he was tough. He set a plan into action to take back his land. By 1622, the colony had grown from Jamestown and a few other forts to encompass both sides of the James River, down to the coast. On Friday, March 22nd, on a clear morning, O launched an attack that they were sure would drive the English from Virginia forever. Nearly a third of the colonists were killed. If not for Christianized natives delivering last-minute warnings, the staggering death toll would have been much higher. The Powhatan Confederacy sat back, thinking that the English must leave, as would have probably been the custom for a Powhatan tribe that had been so soundly defeated. They did not, though, and the war raged for ten years. It included English burning the crops and villages, and natives killing the English people wherever they could. Even a peace summit, called by O, ended in treachery, when the English poisoned the wine and killed 200 warriors in retaliation for the 1622 massacre. Finally, peace prevailed in 1632. It lasted for 14 years, until the last Anglo-Powhatan War in 1644. Of note, Thomas Rolfe returned to Virginia during this time and was actually on good terms with both O and the people in Jamestown. After the third and final war, he settled and inherited his father's lands. John Smith, of note, died in 1631 in England. He died at the age of 51, likely from an illness. But the third Anglo-Powhatan War was a last-ditch effort to drive the English from the land. About a tenth of the colonists, now about 500 people, were killed in that war, but it also claimed O. He died, as some say, at age 92. He had been taken captive, and he was shot in the back by a man who was supposed to be guarding him at Jamestown. In 1646, nearly 40 years after the English had set out, the Powhatan Confederacy, the preeminent power in the land at the time of the English arrival, disintegrated back into its client tribes. There would be about 30 years of peace between the natives and the English, until Bacon's Rebellion in the 1670s, where hostilities would spark again and Jamestown would burn. We're going to leave the story here because this is history. It can stretch in either direction and it's infinitely nuanced. I don't really have a pithy little ending to the story, it's tragic. I wish it was the story we all knew about Pocahontas. 
I wish the age-appropriate daughter of Powhatan and a misguided but kind John Smith fell in love, and that he saved Powhatan from the wrath of the English with a sacrificial gesture. I wish that was the story I could tell here. But as I'm unintentionally inching closer and closer to imitating a Shawshank Redemption quote, I might as well just lean in and embrace it. History, it seems, is no fairy tale world. But seriously, every week I get on here, and I find humanity in the most unexpected places. We might have even felt a little bit for Ogmund, the faceless troll, or understood the possible reasons for King Arthur's May Day Massacre. The bitter irony, though, for me, is that when I looked into history here, actual stories of actual people, I saw little else than betrayal, darkness, and death. That being said, what strikes me as a takeaway from the story of Pocahontas was just how brave, how strong the woman was. In the end, she did help bring about a peace between her people and the English. She bridged cultures and found common ground. And though she died of disease in a strange land, she cared for her son, and the conflict saw a brief respite on account of her actions. Next week, it's a return to form for this podcast, where we talk about a story that's not at all related to history. We're going back to Greek mythology, and we'll be talking about the death of Hercules. There will be sea monsters, the first sack of Troy, and, of course, even more centaurs. As a quick note about today's story, the Powhatan oral history is actually more specifically Mataponi oral history. They were part of the Powhatan Confederacy back in the 17th century. I've included this source in the discussion post. Also, I've researched and researched the story, and though I've sought to get everything right, please let me know if I got anything wrong. These history episodes are a bear, and as always, I'm very appreciative of any feedback. There was a lot that I had to leave out, so if you're interested, please check out the sources I listed on the discussion post. I want to say thanks to the nosy one, Andrew and me, Procrastinoma, ABBDDB, Miss Tia Maria, This Dizzy Dream, Byron 109, Sarah Jiffy, Joe Ford, Anne Rudinsky, Harriet the Fangirl, Listening While Running, EV88Ost, and JoJo's00 for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or the podcast app, you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, I did an interview with Dan Lizette on the Podcast Digest this week. If you want to hear how the show got started, what it takes each week, and way more us than usual, check that out. I've linked it in the show notes, and it's on mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Ra, or the Radandar, from Sweden. They are tree creatures. Well, kind of mainly just tree tenants. They are invisible creatures that live in a tree and help it grow. If you see a tree growing taller than all the others or one lone tree on a hillside, you can be probably not at all confident that one of these creatures is living in it. Of course, they will harm you if you harm their tree. So don't harm their tree or do harm their tree because they can only move as far as the tree's shadow. So if you are reasonably sure, you can get around seven feet away pretty quickly less at noon, harm trees to your heart's content. They particularly enjoy lime trees, so if you feel the need to disrespect a tree, but want to be a little safer about it, maybe don't shout insults at lime trees, or really any trees, because that's weird. They hang their laundry in the tree, because apparently you can't call a tree a name, 
but they can hang their underwear from it, and that's not disrespectful. Anyway, if you destroy their tree, they will haunt you forever, and even though they have some very real distance-related limitations, if you make them super mad, they have a little loophole. They will uproot the tree and use it to chase after you. So yeah, if you decide to casually insult a lime tree and then see little feet underneath it as it comes running after you, it's very unlikely that it's the super cliche Looney Tunes disguise, and instead it's probably a murderous supernatural creature. So you should definitely run. That's it for this time. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is linked in the show notes. Once again, today's show was brought to you by Weebly. Weebly was created for people with the courage to start their own business and the dream to be their own boss. And you don't need to be a web designer or know how to code to create a fantastic website. So yeah, creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com slash myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. Weebly.com slash myths. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.